Bonjour les amis et bienvenue, welcome to the next episode of the Paris Lessons. Merci d'être là. Thank you for being here. In this week's episode, I'm going to talk about my French journey. Many of you have already heard this story, but in response to a message that I received this week asking about my French journey, I realized that it has actually been some time since I told the story of my own French journey. And it won't be the exact same story that many of you have heard before because more time has gone on. I've gone further in my French journey. Now I'm studying again at the Sorbonne. But also I have, um, I have some new perspectives on what it means to be fluent in a language, what it means to strive to be fluent in a language, and actually why, why not only striving to be fluent, but also being fluent isn't necessarily um, perhaps what, you know, the dream that you think that you think it is. Remember what I've said before on this podcast, you always want to have a dream. You always want to have something pulling you forward. And when you get to your destination, i.e. when you, you become fluent, which those of you who've heard me talk about this before know that I don't really think that that flu I think that fluency is a is a is a great myth when it comes to language learning. However, those of you who who still have in your mind, you know, this goal of I want to be fluent, I want to be fluent, uh, imagine, you know, when you get to your destination, a lot of the magic is gone. So I always tell people to strive to be fluid, but I'm getting a little bit off topic here. Let me start from the beginning of my French journey, and then I will answer your wonderful questions and comments this week. So I uh, did not... Let me, let me first... S- um, negate all of the assumptions that I think people make a lot about me. And I can I can tell that people make these assumptions about me based on the message that, messages that I get. Uh, I am not French. I do not have a French parent. I'm not from a French family. Sometimes you will hear me talk about my French aunt. I have um, a French aunt by marriage. And I'll talk about this more in my, when I talk about my French journey because her family... Her extended family in France played a very important role in my French journey when I um, was just coming here for the first time as a student in 1999. And actually, that family and also the friends that I made working in New York were the inspiration behind my new company, Speak French, Spread Love. And you've heard me talk about this a tiny bit, but this is where I'm now having more teachers work with me to provide online lessons for you, lessons in Paris, but also most importantly, most uniquely, French conversation practice sessions online, because I really believe that the key to the success of my French journey was this, the the key was the opportunities that I had to practice my French with people that I felt very, very comfortable with, like my best friend Xavier, when we first met when I was working at a gallery, when we were working at a gallery in New York together, my aunt's family, when I would stay with them, they there's still some of them that live outside of Paris. I'll be spending Christmas with them this year, and a lot of them still live in the South and Narbonne. Um, and, you know, it was really and, and myriad other friends that I met because I, I've shared with you before, I really went out of my way to meet French people when I was a French student at UC Berkeley when or a student of the French language at UC Berkeley. And I knew that I was getting ready to come to Paris to study piano, to study French literature at the Sorbonne. And I knew that my French game needed to be, you know, really, really elevated. And, you know, also this was this was 
1998-1999 as I was leading up to my year abroad. So they're really the internet was sort of a new thing. So I couldn't go on YouTube and you know look at videos of French lessons or you know just watch you know there wasn't Netflix. I couldn't watch French movies on Netflix. I really had to seek out live experiences for practicing French. So that's why I sought out the French circle, Le Cercle Français at UC Berkeley, and I realized that it was inactive. So I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll fix that and I'll be, the new, I'll be the president and we'll get this thing going again. And so thanks to that, I was able to meet a lot of French people at UC Berkeley that were studying abroad at Berkeley. And, and thanks to being a music student and also um, a, a very specific type of contemporary music composition that was then called computer music, there was a um, there was a sort of like partenariat, a partnership with the Center for New Music and Audio uh, Technologies at UC Berkeley and a center here near um, near the Pompidou called IRCAM, and it's still there today. So a lot of their researchers and their composers were spending time at a lab that I was studying at and composing at, at UC Berkeley. So in San Francisco has a wonderful francophone, francophile culture, so like I, I made, for example, more French friends going to a Bastille Day party in San Francisco, and some of them I'm still in touch with today. So I was really, even though I was nervous about speaking French with French people, I was very actively seeking out French people to practice French with. And this was a key element to my getting through that very uncomfortable tunnel of becoming a student of the French language to becoming a French speaking person. I never, sure, I've been called fluent in French many times. Um, there have been moments where I thought, oh, I guess I'm fluent. I guess this is what fluent feels like. You know, these moments of great freedom when I don't feel any limits when it comes to expressing myself in French, whether speaking or writing. But when I became a French teacher, I started to realize how this concept of fluency was just something that was so not helpful in a student's mind and that's when I came up the came up with the concept of fluidity right which fluidity for me is twofold it means you know number one that you're 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 fluid right you're not for me fluency is very rigid it means you know all the words and you know everything which most people don't aren't even fluid in their in their native language in that case but you know to really express yourself in another language, you need to be able to be, you know, fluid, to be flexible, to be open. Conversations are dances. You never really know what the other person's going to say. So you can't possibly be prepared ahead of time with all the words that you would need to know, right? A, a conversation in French isn't an exam. That's why I've created these opportunities to have French conversation practice for you. So you can really practice this element of conversation that's that's unpredictable and beautiful. That is the dance of conversation. So speaking French with French people that I felt very comfortable with was a, a essential doesn't even, it doesn't even really cover what I'm trying to say, but, but it was bigger than that. But, but <laughs> because of the limits of language, I'll say it was an essential part of my French journey. And that's why the people that I'm, that I'm selecting to be a part of French is beautiful. They absolutely have to be people that have the knowledge of a teacher, 
but le regard d'un ami or d'une amie, but the you know the gaze of a friend, as I said in a newsletter in a newsletter recently, because I really want them to be people that you feel comfortable just speaking with. And a conversation practice session means that, of course, you're going to be able to make mistakes. You're not necessarily going to stop and have a full lesson about it because these conversation practice sessions are only 30 minutes because I know that it can be very tiring to improvise and practice your French, right? Especially just simply in conversation. So this is why I say that, you know, you really need to be an intermediate learner. You don't have to be an advanced learner, but an intermediate learner to take advantage of these sessions. Um, but these will be sessions where you're going to learn new vocabulary and more exact ways of pronouncing things based on topics that matter to you, right? Talking about your day, talking about what you did last weekend, what you're going to do next weekend, a museum you went to, what's going on at work, um, you know, what, what your dog likes to do on the weekends, whatever it is, really, these are meant to be or your last trip to Paris, or, or what you would love to do if you went to Paris one day. These conversation practice sen- sessions are meant to be very personal with people that are very personable. So the first teacher that I have working with French is Beautiful, her name is Miriam, and she's a collègue, she's a colleague. That's how we don't really say classmate, we say more colleague in French. She's a colleague of mine from the Sorbonne. And I had the pleasure of meeting her last year. And I know that you will love, love, love working with her. And I put a link to reserve a conversation practice session with her in the email. So I studied French for the first time officially at UC Berkeley. I studied Spanish in high school. I I spent my adolescent years in Northern California, but I spent my childhood years in Michigan. And in Michigan, at least at the time, French was more the go-to language because of its proximity to um, to Canada, mainly to Quebec. So I did have some some French language classes when I was in kindergarten and you know first grade, maybe even second grade. But it didn't go, you know. Really, my recollection of that is 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 a song and colors and days of the week. That's about it. So because I was so interested in classical music and mainly classical piano, I really wanted to study abroad in Europe. And uh, Paris was my, pardon me, top choice because at the time, I still do love, but at the time my main focus was French piano music like Debussy, um, also Chopin, who wasn't French, but um, had a very, very sort of French style of writing and playing because he spent so much time en France, in France, etc., etc. So I found out about this program where I could potentially be placed if I was accepted at a wonderful music school here in Paris. And in anticipation of that, I started taking French. So instead of continuing with my Spanish, I started taking French in college. And I took five semesters of French. Um, French really taught me how to study, right? It really taught me to be patient. I was never a student that had to study very much, unfortunately, because that gave me some really terrible study habits. Uh, But French really taught me to have more discipline and patience in my studies. And I think the fifth, no, the third semester, so I did a lot of French in a short period of time. I did summer school 
uh, one year in French because you know I was I knew that I was at that point going to live in Paris and I knew that I was going to a school where I had to speak French so that put a lot of pressure on me but in a good way it was very very motivating so I think that that's one lesson we can take from my French journey is that it's wonderful to have a goal not necessarily a destination, you know, a final destination, because as I said earlier, you sort of always want to be propelled forward. That's what adds the magic to your French journey. Like for me, I could have been super happy to, you know, just finish my education, have finished my education where it ended years ago, but now I'm back in school again and I'm back in school studying philosophy in French. So my French journey continues, which is so inspiring to me. So Number one, it's wonderful to have a goal. And this is also, I know I'm going to talk about these French conversation practice sessions a lot. Forgive me, but I I spent so much time coming up with this way to provide you with access to this wonderful, this wonderful element of my French journey that really propelled me forward that I saw as the missing link in so many of the French journeys of my students. And I'm really confident in Miriam and I'm so proud of her already as a teacher, the feedback that she's getting, that it's really important to me to communicate this to you, how what a wonderful opportunity this is to really keep you moving along in your French journey. So, um, you know, for example, a French conversation practice session, this is also why it's great to be in school because you have tests, right? And we always study a bunch before a test. So if you have a French conversation practice session with Miriam coming up, you're surely going to be motivated to, you know, review your basics, go over some of the months of the membership if you're a member, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really great to have goals to keep you moving forward. So I arrived in Paris and actually... (laughs) A friend of mine who became one of the first students of French is beautiful. He lives in San Francisco. He was in town last night. He's American, but we'll call him Michel for for privacy purposes. Um, and we had a, we had so much fun talking last night about how because he's also had a similar experience studying abroad and you know learning a language, and then you get to the country and you realize you learn a very you've learned a very academic version. Of the language, so that's what happened when I arrived in Paris in in August of 1999. I realized that the French that I knew was actually very academic and not very practical. There was there was a lot of key vocabulary that I didn't have for everyday use. Uh, one of the wonderful things that I did, which was not easy, um, and this is something that if you're an expat living in Paris. You know, I know it's not easy, but listen to me when I say um, it's very important to limit the time that you spend with other Anglophones. It was very lonely for me at first when I came to Paris as a student, but I easily saw how all the Anglophones gathered together and were going out together all the time. And I made so much more progress with my French in the first few months than they did in the entire year. And that's that's normal. That's not because I have a special gift. That's because you make more progress in whatever you spend more time doing. So I was really... You know, also, I wasn't taking any classes in English. I was taking as many classes as I could at French institutions. I was only reading in French. I was going to French films. I was chatting with my host family in French over dinner in the evenings when we had dinners organized together. I was really all about the all French. I was watching 90210 dubbed in French in my TV in my room. It was all French all the time. 
I was watching things like Le Guignol, which is a, a sort of, it's like a political, the best way I could describe it to an American is like the political Muppets. And that's when Jacques Chirac was president. So he was sort of my first French president that came into my you know, psyche on my French journey. And, and, uh, he was, he was regularly featured in, or his, his puppet was in Les Guignols. So it was just all French all the time, no matter how frustrating it felt or how lonely it got. And it paid off because about halfway through the year, I started dreaming in French. I started having dreams where my parents were talking to me in French, which my mother loved. She would, you know, she'd say, what did I, what did I sound like? I must've sounded fabulous. Um, I was dating a French person, so that was really great. Then I was really speaking French all the time. And and by the time I got back home to the States, I was, you know, I was journaling in French. I was thinking in French. I was, you know, which was so beautiful, but also made it really hard to go back home to the States because I had just really, really become um, so close to French culture and had realized even more um the reason behind this this motivation that I had to come to France was because actually there's something in me that really resonates with French culture. Um, but that that was that's what happened when I was a student here. And then I went back to the States. I had to finish one more year at UC Berkeley. I didn't take any French classes that year. I had to write my honors thesis and I, yeah, I didn't take any French classes, but I kept reading in French. I think at that point, I sort of felt like I felt like I, I was confident that I was going to keep up with my French on my own through reading, et cetera, et cetera, and watching films and, you know, and hanging out with my, my French friends that I'd made in Berkeley and San Francisco. So then it came time to, um, you know, start my professional life. Um, my second job that I got in New York, the first job that I got was, um, thanks to being able to speak Spanish. And I had that job for eight months. So I've always just really been driven by opportunities to speak other languages. That was as a legal assistant for a law firm that had mainly Spanish and Portuguese speaking clients. And then the second job that I had was I, which I got very serendipitously, my aunt's family was visiting New York and we were walking around together and we walked into this gallery in Soho and the owner happened to be French and we started chatting and he happened to be looking for an office manager. And shortly thereafter, I became the office manager. So that led to this wonderful opportunity where I was working in French, speaking in French, on the phone, writing in French, um, just having all these wonderful French experiences. Most of my colleagues were French. That's where I met my best friend, Xavier. This was in, I think, um, let me think for one quick second, 2000, around 2003. And the gallery is no longer in Soho anymore. Um, I forget what's there now, but it was on Spring Street. And it was just such a, such a wonderful, wonderful time and a really great uh, work experience. Which is also why you probably, you've noticed on Instagram lately, I'm going to a lot more art events uh, in partnership with in, well, not really in partnership with, sort of as the guest of this wonderful organization, Culture Secrets, Culture Secret. It's a French organization. They're going to start offering visites, visits in English soon. But I just love being in galleries and I love talk, talking to artists. That was a really, I have so many happy memories of working at uh, that gallery. It's called Opera Gallery. It still exists and it's, it's all over the world now. 
um, that it's just, I've always felt at home in galleries. So I'm loving doing these, um, these visites with Culture Secret. So that was that. And then I'm just sort of giving you the French highlights. I was in New York for a few more years. At that point, I started to really, really miss being more in the arts because I majored in music and I was a pianist and um, I had done a lot of theater in high school. So I started taking theater classes at HB Studio in New York and doing a lot of plays on the weekends and getting, you know, small parts and small films because I could speak French. Um, I was in a really, a really cute short film called Part of My French, and it was this uh, speed dating, it was like a French speed dating, uh, the story was about French speed dating. Um, but anyway, always a French adventure, somehow, I was always seeking a French adventure, and, um, and that led to me, that led to me moving to Los Angeles, as that as you know, that career as an actress was was developing, and and that's where I found out about this uh, wonderful wonderful company called Atelier Tutors um, that I believe are still in Los Angeles, and they were looking for French teachers, and that's how I started doing that. So then, so it was interesting because in New York I was rarely speaking in English. Most of my friends spoke Spanish and French, and then I moved to LA. And I was speaking English most of the time. Um, all the friends that I already had in L.A. So a lot of my friends from Northern California have moved to L.A., but most of them only spoke English. You know, there, there is a huge French community in L.A., um, but I didn't I didn't know anyone in it at the time. So it was really strange to me to be speaking English all the time. And it was and I loved the idea of teaching being my opportunity, teaching French being my opportunity to speak French. So that's how I really kept French in my life in Los Angeles and, and this concept of digital immersion that I've imparted to my students. So, you know, watching French movies online, always listening to French music at home, listening to French podcasts, reading the French news, reading French blogs, etc., etc. So that I would say would be the second lesson that you could take from my my French journey is you can just you can tell in this story how consistently proactive I was about keeping French around me just every single day and you know really because I wanted to because it made me happy not because I felt like I had to it's really terrible when we feel like we have to do things it just turns them into this you know, takes all the color out. They just become these gray activities. So really remember to try to stay in the space of like, you're doing this because you love it. You're speaking French because it makes you feel great. You're learning French because you have an insatiable curiosity for other cultures, right? Always remember, always stay connected to your why to keep your journey really colorful. Because as soon as your journey becomes gray and tedious, that's when you're going to kind of procrastinate engaging with your French and then you're going to have this really awful feeling of like oh well now if I pick it up again I have to start over or you know being disappointed in yourself etc etc so um that's it cut to me starting French is Beautiful in 2014 moving to Paris in 2015 and you know then at that point I didn't have to worry about digital immersion I was here and but then, you know, still realizing, you know, not so much as part of my French journey, but also just as my educational journey a couple of years ago that I really wanted to go back to school and I wanted to get a master's and this interest in philosophy because I've always, it's actually funny if you, I mean, it's not funny in a comical way. It's odd. 
you might think that I have read a lot of fiction that's out there, but but I became so used to this rule that I had forever and ever that I could only read fiction in French that most American fiction that's been written in the last 20 years, I have not read because my rule has always been I can only read in French. So that's that I'm slightly deficient when it comes to contemporary American fiction. However, it was a wonderful way for me to stay connected to my French. And, um, you know, I could read American nonfiction. I, I love to read a, or you know, English nonfiction. I love to read or nonfiction in English. I should, I should say, I love to read nonfiction. I always have. So that's how, um, you know, I I was always reading a lot of personal development and then looking for the French equivalent, not finding it because it's not nearly as prevalent here because they rely more on philosophy. And that's where this interest in philosophy was born. And, um, which, which just really blended well with my desire to go back to school and also a, a really deep desire to, to practice my French writing, but not just writing in French, you know, of course I can write in French, but really clear expression, um, and, and a command of the language where I could be very, very creative, right? Like writing poetry. I was in a poetry atelier at the Sorbonne last year, writing poetry in French. There's a wonderful, wonderful British author. She, she, she's no longer on this earth as of a long time, but um, Renée Vivienne is the, that's the name that she's known by. And she was wonderful and she wrote wonderful poetry in French and has these beautiful translations of Sappho from ancient Greek into French. I highly encourage you to, to look at Renée Vivienne's work. But that's, that, you know, that's something that, that lives inside of me that, that I would really like to do too. And I love to write and, and I love to read about philosophy. And so, so here's this next chapter of my, my French journey. If you will, from which you, can, you could um, pull out a third lesson, which I actually started the podcast with. But it's to, you know, always, always find something that keeps pulling you forward. You really, you know, we're not, we need some inertia. We need help. We need something that's going to pull us forward. Otherwise, it's just part of being human. Sometimes it's it's hard to find the energy and also, you know, the belief in ourselves that we can keep going and can moving forward. But also, you know, find something. If you're not a very disciplined person, find something that will give you some, that will give you an opportunity to be disciplined. So, being in school is wonderful because, you know, there are deadlines, there are épreuves, there's tests, there's things that need to be done. So I know that no matter what I'm going, I know no matter what, that I will make a lot of progress in this program because it's imposing a certain discipline discipline on me. Well, you can create the same sort of discipline by having regular online lessons or regular online conversation practice sessions. And the beautiful thing about that is time, as much as we can't control it and as much as we feel like we don't have enough of it, our future is made up of our present. 
our everything that we want to accomplish that that magical moment of oh wow I did that in retrospect the doing of it seems like it happened so fast and it was so much easier than it felt in the moment but that's also the beauty of time so taking that initiative to schedule lessons on a regular basis once a week or once every two weeks just do that once you have a discipline in place all you have to do is show up for your lessons and then as a month goes by two months go by inevitably it is literally inevitable you will have made progress and most importantly you'll be so you'll feel so inspired and be so so proud of yourself so that's the story of my french journey as i tell it today i welcome all of your questions bien sûr of course about that um you know and i hope that i clearly expressed that and in reference to last week it wasn't always fearless I wasn't always fearless I vividly remember being very nervous trying to have my first French conversations trying to get the words out trying to think of what to say worse yet trying to think of something smart or cool or funny to say instead of just being myself talking too quickly people always talk way too quickly when they're trying to practice speaking their French it's completely normal. I think it's just nerves. We all do it. I remember all of that just like it was yesterday. And that's why that's why I have empathy. And that's why I'm always sitting here, chez moi, à Paris, at my house in Paris, thinking of ways to recreate my French journey for you. Hence the birth of Speak French, Spread Love. Et voilà, chers amis. Let me get into your questions now. There were three great questions this week. On a previous podcast, or maybe it was the membership audio, you had mentioned how Parisians don't eat croissant every day or a lot of the heavy food that is served at restaurants, which totally makes sense. I cannot handle eating too much French food when I'm traveling either. So I was wondering what would be the typical French food that a person would eat in their home for dinner, like a normal weekday meal, either a single person or a family, but not a dinner party. I'm exploring French cooking, so thanks for any insight. Great question, Mabel. So first of all, French cooking that you're going to see in French cookbooks is going to be the classic cooking, which is all really, really well, I shouldn't say all, but mainly really, really heavy. Like the dinner that I had at Jumonet the other week, the dinner that I had at Benoit Friday night. These these are classic French restaurants that I love. They are, you know, you're full until, I am anyway, until halfway through the next day. So remember that. Um, so just like what I said last week about French people and alcohol, I know how sometimes we have this myth that they can just drink so much and not get drunk. No, they're only human. They have, we all have the same systems. They just don't drink a lot. They consume alcohol very moderately. Um, same with French feelings. We kind of have this, this idea of, you know, French women being always being so cool and collected, um, which they may be in their communication, but they still have all the intense feelings that we do as Americans. They're they're only human. So when it comes to eating the same thing, you know, it's it's a matter of calories in and energy out. So, you know, French people aren't going to have bouffe bourguignon every day of the week and have a croissant every day of the week for breakfast. You know, a child can get away with having croissants every day for breakfast. Um, but what would a French person typically eat then? They're just going to eat whatever feels good for their body. So they're probably going to have toast in the morning or maybe a croissant, but not like probably not every single day. It's really just them eating in a way that's com that's common that has to do with common sense 
and also eating intuitively to a certain degree. Um, They do do this funny thing for breakfast that I've never... (laughs) um, I've, I've just never liked it. I don't really like food that's really hard, but sometimes when you ask for... If someone offers you des toasts, T-O-A-S-T-S, you might think you're getting toast, but it's not. It's these pre-packaged, pre-made toasts, little little toasted slices of bread that are really hard and really dry. They're kind of like big croutons. So sometimes they'll just put butter on that and jam on that. I don't like that just because, like I said, I don't really like really hard foods, but they might have like pain grillé, right? So toasted bread or a baguette, but they're definitely not going to have like a chausson aux pommes every morning of the week or a big heavy pastry. Um, for lunch, you know, they might do like, um, you know, a nice light healthy dish or a fish, you know, especially French people that are working in business. They're really into business lunches. The food in Paris has changed a lot since I've been here. So now there are a lot more Uh, vegan restaurants, organic restaurants where the cuisine is a bit lighter. Like I mentioned that wonderful restaurant Marcel that I loved before that has these like wonderful salads that are more like California salads that are very hard to find in Paris because normally salads have incredibly heavy dressing. As far as dinner goes, you know, I can't tell you what a French person would typically eat for dinner and I'm sure um, I'm sure my answer is a little bit frustrating but I take I take my answers in these podcasts very very seriously I don't you know if I sometimes I do make generalizations but I don't want to make blanket generalizations in instances where I really can't I mean you know French people at the end of the day they're just people so they might have um spaghetti des pâtes pasta they might have um you know if it's like a winter's evening they might have a really wonderful soup they might order in some thai food they might uh have like a poulet roti from a shop downstairs a rotisserie chicken but my point in saying they don't eat really really heavy foods every day is that you know they're they're just people too they can't again let's to give the example they're not going to have bouffe bourguignon or cassoulet every night followed by a croissant in the morning um they could have like instead of a croissant one of the things i love is un oeuf à la coque so those those are the soft boiled eggs where you crack open the top and you dip like the small strips of bread in that's actually a rather light satisfying breakfast i like that breakfast a lot or like an omelet their omelets here tend to be uh, much like more wet than the omelets much 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 more wet actually than the omelets we have in the states so I hope that helps. And yes, of course, like this aspect of your question, you know, when you said um, a normal weekday meal, but not a dinner party, French people obviously are not always having dinner parties either. And sometimes they get busy. And sometimes, you know, dinner is just that leftover poulet roti and some salad and maybe a small glass of wine or maybe not. And voila. And there you go. Thanks for the wonderful question, Mabelle. This next question was a very interesting question. Uh, This listener writes, Carrie Ann, your Instagram feeds my soul. Why do you think I have such an awful case of fear of missing out? And then I look at your Instagram feed and it makes me feel like I can breathe again. I love this question, which at first I thought was a comment, but there's a question mark there. Um, And so I thought about it. And I, I I loved reading this. Thank you so, so, so very much. This is actually something 
uh, that I've put a lot of thought into as far as um, the French is beautiful Instagram feed because I'm only human too and I have FOMO too when I look at certain certain things online or certain feeds and it's always been um, really important to me to to make videos and audios and images and captions that somehow give people access to yes to something that's dreamy or you know maybe an experience that's outside of their current reality but somehow something that they can still access inside of themselves um that's also actually why one of the reasons why there aren't a lot of people in the photos that I post in my Instagram is because I have a belief that if you see other people in in a photo of that beautiful spot in Paris that you want to be in, you'll have a hard time seeing yourself there or because you'll already see other people there or worse, you'll feel separate. You'll feel other. You'll, you'll see it subconsciously. Your subconscious might have a thought like, oh, well, they're, they're there, but I'm not. And I want you to just look at a beautiful place and just immediately picture yourself there. So, um, and actually a really good friend of mine helped me to put this into words. It was on the road trip this summer. And the difference for me is aspirational versus inspirational. So I'm very conscious about not posting anything that's going to make people feel like um, they want something that they can't have. I want to post things that inspire people to think about beautiful things that make them happy or inspire people to move towards the things that they want. But again, the last thing I want to do is post things that might plant an idea in someone's head like, that's wonderful, but I couldn't have that. Or she has that, I don't have that. Or they're there, I'm not there. Again, so aspirational versus inspirational. I really strive to be inspirational. I strive to keep my, my, my personal voice in what I what I create for all of you in it as much as possible but I also again like I said by not having people in the photos very often and um, by, by using my voice the way I do in the audios I also strive to have it be an experience that you can really actively participate in with your imagination um, with your inner dialogue so you know I want it to be something that you're where it can be, where I want it to be an experience where it's not so loaded with information that your soul doesn't feel like it has room to contribute to it. So thank you so much for this question and your comment and know that you uh, tapped into something that's really, really important to me. So thank you. And this is our last question, which is another fun question. My question is totally unrelated. Oh, sorry. No, she, this is the, so I'm taking the last part of her email. I didn't need to read that part. She was just saying, my question is totally unrelated to the above. Um, my next, my question captures my imagination. How did the French do getting married? Long or short engagement, church, justice of the peace, elaborate ceremony, or a simple one? What foods are traditional to serve and what do they symbolize? Thank you, my cher. Okay, so I'm just going to like go through, take these in order. How do the French do getting married? So the biggest difference is they have a mariage civil 
and should they wish, obviously, a religious marriage too. So there's really a two-part element to French marriages here. So if you were following on my Instagram stories a couple of weekends ago, you saw some videos from my friend uh, Blair and her husband now, Romain's mariage civil. So each um, so there's the Hôtel de Ville, which is like the main mayor's office in Paris. That's near Châtelet. That's where Anne Hidalgo works. But then each arrondissement has its own little Hôtel de Ville. So you get married in, at the Hôtel de Ville where in, in the neighborhood where you live. So, so we were at the Hôtel de Ville where they live. And each arrondissement has its own mayor. Which, so it's always fun to go to these mariages civils because you get to meet the mayors of the different arrondissements. And it's always funny because they all start the same. Like, so happy to have you here today in this, the most beautiful Hôtel de Ville de Paris. They all say that because everyone thinks theirs is the most beautiful. So everyone laughs. Um, a long or short engagement. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's sort of like at home. Sometimes people stay engaged for a long time. Sometimes it's a short time. Sometimes people never get engaged. There's lots of Parisian couples that, you know, have families that just marriage isn't their thing. Um, sometimes the engagement can be shorter if, you know, someone, you know, in my circles, of course, I know quite a few couples where one is French and one isn't. So sometimes engagements are shorter because of, you know, visa reasons and such. And the, the mariage civil is pretty short. It's 15 minutes long, but everyone always gets really emotional because it comes before the religious marriage if they have one. Um, people get dressed up, but you get dressed up like you would for a rehearsal dinner. Um, usually there's like a breakfast after with everyone or a dinner after with everyone. If you, you've probably sat next to a mariage civil dinner at a restaurant in Paris before and not having and not and have not realized it so now you'll notice it when you're here it might be 10 people um or 15 people or five people at a table but you wouldn't have thought it was a marriage because there's not like a huge wedding gown right but you'll see like a, a beautiful woman wearing like a, a cream colored or a white colored just beautiful dress that you would wear like a silk dress maybe that you'd wear to a summer garden party maybe with a flower in her hair as the french always do very, very understated. Um, so you could do something at your home after the mariage civil or at a restaurant. There's always champagne. Um, there's always like the really festive foods, at least of the ones I've been at. So like, like des huîtres, oysters. Um, it depends. I've been to some that are sit-down dinners in restaurants or some that are sort of like a really beautiful apéro dînatoire set up at a restaurant where there's like a lot, a lot of people or an apéro dînatoire set up in someone's home, but always a lot of champagne. And then the religious ceremonies usually take place a month after. So typically the mariage civil has like just the really close friends and the parents. But sometimes people only do a mariage civil, so there's a lot more people. Um, like I think sometimes they can hold as many as, I'm trying to think, maybe 50 people. I'm trying to picture the rooms I've been in. Um, um, but sometimes the religious marriages take place, I don't know. You know, it's really, there's no rules. Um, you know, I've heard of some that take place a year later. Typically they're bigger um, typically, they'll take place outside of Paris for obvious reasons. There are more space. Many Parisians aren't from Paris, so 
it might take place at you know one of the one of the partners families places in the south or in the northeast it's always fun to like you know try and get a nice little chateau or like a big um you know like a manoir so that like the family can all stay together and we can have the big big party there um i've been to really traditional catholic french weddings with the mass and everything i've been to well, actually they, they typically have mass um, but i've also been to religious ceremonies that have not been in the church because not everyone can get married in the church so so voila and i've also been to to you know quote-unquote religious ceremonies that aren't necessarily religious either there's really no rules but i'd say the big difference between here and the states is that it's very understated not surprisingly and that also there's the mariage civil first so that's when you sign all the documents and you make it you really make it official and then there's the the religious marriage i love the mariage civil they're so sweet and you can also like on your next trip to paris you could just hang out in front of an hotel de ville on a Saturday and you'll see a bunch of them come out and it's it's they take pictures and everyone's so happy and everyone's dressed up and it's really really sweet and lovely. Et voilà, chers amis. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful questions. Thank you for listening. Et je vous souhaite une très belle semaine.